bum bum. Oh. Da bum bum bum. Bum. Instagram post. Got a like. What's your post? I'm on the rings page. Oh, is it the? Oh God. <laughs> yes. Yes. What? What's the name of the page? Um, Not that I would know. L O T R underscore memorials. <laughs> It's all very shit. Just fit to the belt. Hell yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. I assume they're elves. Oh. Yeah, they're elves. Follow the dwarf though. Follow the dwarf. Well, that's pretty cool. Dwarf's pretty cool. There's a dwarf in the Silver Lady named Meme. Meme? Yeah. That's excellent. Well, we need to make some meme memes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Have I not come across meme memes? It's going. It's going. It's going. It's going. Um. <coughs> gonna come and come and sit here, Bell. Bell's feisty today. We talked about this. Bell, we talked. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> Is this his? Oh, there we go. You want to come up over here? I'm trying to get you on camera. <laughs> I mean, a microphone. Want a third mic? That's right. Come on. Come on. There we go. Stay there, though. You can't come on my lap. I'm so sorry. You'll figure it out. Good afternoon, Dan. Afternoon, Jack. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? I got a cat on my lap. Nice, 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 nice. Hey, look at me. I got that going for me. Bell, you're going to have to relax. <laughs> Sit there. Sit. Stay. Uh-uh. Stay there. Just stay there. <laughs> She's normally quite cooperative with these. With these I know. Things. What's going on today? What's happened? What's happened? All right. You can stay there. That's. You just got you to be quiet, though. You got to be... Shh. When Jack says, okay, you could stay there, he's basically just relented to let Bell be in the most awkward position possible. <laughs> yeah. And trying to make it seem like I have some sort of mastery over whatever's happening right now. I feel lower today than I usually am. Have well, I that's what I was saying. Like, the floor is sloped. The floor is sloped. You're and the couch has been moved back, so maybe... Yeah, because this is the same angle. Bell, you gotta relax. <laughs> to would, you, would you like to say something, Bell? All right, that was Bell, ladies and gentlemen. That was Bell's thoughts. Um, this is going to be a high-energy episode, Dan. I can feel it. This is going to be a one one for the memory books, I think. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, uh, because we're going to be um, attempting to cover our ignorance. Yes. Performance. It'll be well. Yes, we'll have to be actively thinking uh, how to make ourselves not come across like morons, um, <laughs> which I don't think we will. I, I, th- I don't think we'll come across quite as stupid as we're thinking. Sure, I think um, I, I suppose it's. Um... <laughs> in the eyes of the beholders is not exactly so, exactly yeah let just, us know just, 
how stupid are we? Because that's not the right kind of audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if people say that we're wrong, it's just not the right kind of audience. <laughs> they just don't get it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. If you know why we're wrong, you shouldn't be listening. No, yeah. I tell you what, no, I <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, don't also, don't read this. Don't read what we're reading. <laughs> um, it has gotten somehow much colder than the last show. We have entered winter. We have entered winter. I thought it, this was winter. I thought winter was December. And I was I was talking, who is it talking about? I was talking with someone and they were like, it's going to be cold through March. And I was like, it's going to be cold through March? It's not even January. <laughs> it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's, it's contested whether winter starts on the 1st of December or whether it Starts on the 21st or whenever the solstice is. Yeah. So yeah. We've it's cold. Got, we've gotten past the shortest day, but now we just have to suffer the coldest months. Might snow tomorrow. Oh, really? Exciting, yeah, I've yeah. seen pictures of people posting that mm-hmm. it's snowed mm-hmm. in places. Yeah. yeah. Exciting. I won't this have any idea what to like do. like British snow, though, so it's yeah. like a very light dusting. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's, it's melted before you've looked at it. Yeah. Uh, quick broad bean update, because we're talking about the weather. I did have to go to the allotment yesterday and thaw out some broad beans, because the plastic that I had over the top had sunk, because we had a big storm, and then it got really cold. Um, so the wind and the rain had kind of, like, made the plastic sink so that some of the broad beans were touching the top of the plastic and then a layer of water on top of the plastic froze and so then some of the broad beans froze to that so i had to kind of like cup the broad beans the little tiny beans in my hand and warm them up um oh. two of them might not make it i think they'll be fine it's touch and go it's touch and go it's touch and go i haven't checked on them today but we'll see maybe i should give them all names you can get like insulative insulated insulating <laughs> you can get some kind of fleece yeah you put on your plants <laughs> some like tiny down jackets from mm. patagonia spend a million dollars individual jackets for your beans. <laughs> yeah. my beans have have now grown to the point where they're now touching the pane of glass which is above them so nice i'm gonna have to lift the pane of glass up or yeah. expose the beans to the <laughs> the full the fullest fullness yeah. of the of winter british winter yeah i think they can handle entails it. a very brief and <laughs> small chance of yeah. A very small frost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. They're meant to be grown at this time of year. It's not like... Uh, yeah, we're not forcing them. No, 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 no. Yeah. And they're getting quite tall. They're getting quite tall. Got yeah. Got a few inches on them now. I, yeah, I was looking at uh, the package for the, the Agua Dulce variety of the beans that I planted, and it said that, like, they weren't going to be good until, like, maybe, like, March to June, it said. And oh. I was just like, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> we can celebrate some time the end for beans. winter with some broad beans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um... But yeah, there it is, your broad bean update yeah, uh, yeah, for the, the week. Beans are coming along. Beans are coming along. Um, Maybe we'll get around to sharing some photos of the broad beans. Yes, we should. I'll send you <laughs> more than just one photo of the same okay, broad bean. <laughs> <laughs> um, current events, Dan, checking it all off the list. Uh, we got a Brexit deal. We got a Brexit baby. deal. We did it. Brexit is happening. We did it. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> the cat's excited. I'm excited. You know, it really looked like Boris wasn't going to be able to pull it off. And, and then what do you a, know? It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> it's a Christmas Boris miracle. How did he do that? I'm stunned. I'm impressed. Boris, uh-huh. Uh-huh. well done. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a gift anybody was asking for. Everybody's just disappointed. Yeah. Seems like everybody forgot because of the pandemic. Oh, so yeah. I don't know. It kind of seemed like it fell flat. Obviously a PR thing to be like, Oh, are we going to get a deal? We're not going to get a deal. We might not. Oh, you never know. Oh, we got a deal at the last possible second. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like nobody cares anymore. <laughs> like People just kind of like, oh, yeah, deal, sure. Yeah, I do wonder what it's done, what this past year has really done for people's willingness to engage with that kind of theater. Yeah, I know. yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. Well, in America, still very much, the theater of Trump is still very much going on. And Biden mm. and everybody else, Pelosi, mm. AOC, mm-hmm. it's all still going on. Mm. Um so there's still a taste for it, but for Brexit, I don't know. 
I don't know. I, th- I mean, the whole Tory strategy, right, was to be like, vote for us, don't think about it again. It'll be done. And then they kind of tried to bring it back a bit to get Boris some points, and it's like, all right, well. Sure, yeah, it, just, it, yeah, it, it seems like the thing which is like, they want it to provoke people's passions when they want it to, and they yeah. want it to disappear into the background when it doesn't. Exactly. Um, I mean, whoever was trying to deal with it at some point, they had to divest it of its its power over people, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose that's that's the case with all sort of like political signifiers of that sort. They serve their purpose, and then somehow you have to yeah dis disempower them or mm. sort of dif- sort of like differ from them or like yeah. deflect people's attention onto something else. Kind of yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Fortunately, a global pandemic came along. <laughs> yeah, to thank kind God. Of like sober people's minds. Yeah. Part, I suppose. Um, mm. Mm. But yeah, I don't actually know what this deal really means, and quite. Um, yeah, I was I was trying to read some quite, stuff about quite it. It's just like for a... whom it is designed, yeah. or um, whom it will benefit. Or... Yeah, I uh, don't know. Don't really care, even though I probably should. Um, that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> not a lot we can do. About I'm it. not getting kicked it's out. It's the kind of thing that I'm willing to <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say they were talking about making the Commonwealth the new EU, <laughs> which I think is awesome. Um, so it might even be good for me. Who knows? We'll yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Maybe you can get free movement. Yeah, that'd be cool. Oh my god, that'd be so cool. It could really work out for me, honestly. There was a week where like my brother bought up that idea of like maybe this whole thing will work out for you, and I was like, should I be pro Brexit? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, regardless of what you are, folks, like folks. let's all be pro Jack being allowed to stay. In the <laughs> yes, <UK. laughs> thank you. We are not pro Jack deportation. I did see that a bunch of Australians were like, not Australians, actually a bunch of British people in Australia, like backpackers, had a big party on Christmas, and there were like hundreds of people, and they were like, "This is going to spread coronavirus like crazy." And the Australian government's like, "We're going to deport you," <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Talking about deportation for a bunch of like twenty-something backpackers, classic. Ugh. Ugh. scum of the earth scum of the earth yeah 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 um anything else going on anything else you want to any bean updates perhaps i don't know yeah mm. coronavirus is still happening it's happening still happening we got a getting quite serious yeah <laughs> getting <laughs> we uh some of the lorries are getting off the road around here finally yeah, yeah apparently it's calming down yeah what a great way to spend christmas god that sucks so much <laughs> stuck dude. in the cab of a lorry yeah with a with presumably no heating and or bathroom, presumably. Or one bathroom. Well, maybe they had a bathroom if they had an extended they, cab. They, they, well, I, what I heard was that they, um, obviously they were using the sort of defunct um, Manston Airport mm. as a sort of like... Interesting. Uh, as a lorry park, I suppose. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, but there was only one bathroom on site. Oh, so 600 Ooh. lorries in one bathroom. More like 600 truckers. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah lorries don't need to use the yeah. toilet. That's, 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 uh, um, yeah. I did but, see... But, 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 but given that like this wasn't an improvised scenario, it was something that had been prepared yeah. in advance because they anticipated having to use it in the circumstances of Brexit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> oh, poor Kent. It's a bit of a disaster. Poor Kent, indeed. Mm. Always just the you know. There's lor- lorries everywhere, folks. Lorries everywhere. Lorries. You can't lorries. throw Kent a rock. Full of lorries. Like... <laughs> Full lorries. Um, I went into my bedroom the other day. There was a lorry sticking out of it. <laughs> Too many lorries. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I the other day I forgot the American word for lorry. I, uh, it's truck, truck, I guess. But truck. it's like I was like that's not right. I've been mm. calling it lorry for too long. 
which is a bad uh, uh, development. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna be calling chips. Uh, it, from in my part of the, the part crisps. of the world where I hail from, they say lorry. <laughs> say you pronounce lorry. 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 Lorry, mate. Hey, up, got a lorry. I don't quite know. I've never actually heard that pronunciation. So mm. It's quite a small subset of. Mm. Just a, it's a very small, a small, a small population of the northwest of England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. classic. I don't, know. I don't know. Red rose, or is it the white rose? Uh, red. Red. All right. I suppose. Cool. I suppose. Cool. When you I were, ostent- well, I don't. I don't hail from Lancaster, <laughs> Lancashire. Don't you? No. Isn't what? that? I thought it was. Well, no, not not any longer. Not oh, any but longer. it was. It was upon a time. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And they created it. They created a new one. Have you ever done any War of the Roses reenactments? I have never done any War of the Roses. I don't know if I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) What was the most modern reenactment you've done? Um, Well, I've I've only ever done um, sort of like late medieval. Oh, okay, cool. Is that that, that what you... Yeah, the, the group that I was involved in did... 800 through to cool. 1100 kind of thing that's awesome so it was very cool sort of a saxon and a viking and then sort of norman invasion yes and being, yes being in kent the group that i was with for a little mm. while were norm well primarily <laughs> they were <Norman>. enacted <laughs> being norman gotcha um, cool yeah yeah, yeah. So, but and, and yet you're from the north i would have thought you would not have been pro-norman interesting the harrying didn't they just like kill a bunch oh, of yeah, northerners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah, what are you gonna do? Um I'll tell you what we're gonna do, Dan. <laughs> we're gonna talk <laughs> we're some gonna get on with this. We're podcast. gonna get on with this goddamn podcast. We're gonna talk some philosophy of science. Um we read some Hillary Putnam. Uh-huh. Um, very interesting. Really only dipped our toes because we read an essay, right? Fuck, yes. what is the name of the essay actually? Uh, the Corroboration of Theories by Hilary Putnam. What was this f- from? It was from a bigger book. It's from it? a bigger book. I don't mm. know what it's called. It's from a bigger book. Look it up. Uh, it's the sixth chapter in that book. <laughs> It'll be in the description. Um, and this was this was really interesting because this was like my first engagement with philosophy of science, really, with like actually reading something about it. Um, what, do you, what, what do you know? It's a big topic. <laughs> There's a lot that I had to keep stopping reading. Look up what that meant. Do this. Figure that out. Look up what the word in that thing that I looked up, what that meant. Um, yeah. I was just saying to Dan before this, I think I Googled the word induction about 50 times. Trying to look it out. Oh, God. Read it again. Let's just read yeah. the Wikipedia again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mine was a similar experience. I have come across some of these ideas. I ostensibly have half a degree in philosophy, so I sort oh. of have... Uh, I suppose I've been taught some of these philosophical mm. uh, problems mm. um, and have, have come across some of these proper names and their theories mm. at some point in time. But uh, Did you do a double major? I didn't know that. I, I did politics and philosophy. Oh, yeah, didn't know that. Philosophy no. and politics, technically, mm. I think. Very cool. Um, mm. But I'm not a philosopher. Well. Nor am I. A, a, a politician? Politics, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> well, for the purposes of this, you're I, both. Um, I'm thoroughly a layman. Well. That's, yeah, layman, <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, layman indeed. But you. So, if, yeah, I suppose that's a worthwhile, it's a worthwhile, it's a worthwhile <laughs> caveat to put on this. Yes, um, layman. We are, we are neither philosophers nor scientists. Yes. Um, yes. Nor logicians. Oof, definitely um, not. I, yeah. 
So, 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 so. If it if it comes across as a struggle, <laughs> it's because it's a struggle. It is, and we are we are struggling. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> as ever. Indeed, is this a class struggle? Oh my god. Um, yes. If some of you follow us on Twitter, we posted an interview with Hillary Putnam as part of what Dan described as a famous interview series. What's it called? Uh, I think the Great Philosophers. The Great Philosophers, and it was uh, with Hillary Putnam, and he was explaining a lot of his ideas ostensibly to layman which is kind of like handy yeah very handy <laughs> very handy um and the big idea that at least the interviewer kind of tried made it seem like was his kind of like big idea with science but you know as dan and i were discussing this is an idea that kind of came up before him with thomas kuhn and others was this like reacting against this idea as like studying science as a way to get closer and closer towards like the great truth right it's like we're just building all of our ideas and our theories are just we're learning more and more stuff and we build more and more it's like you put another brick in the wall to build like this big thing and we will understand the universe eventually one day we just got to get there right? yeah yeah, yeah. It's yeah sort of like a jigsaw puzzle kind of mm. image where we sort of uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah sort of jigsaw puzzle theory of knowledge where you accumulate small tidbits until you build up your sort of full image of how the world functions kind of thing mm. um i suppose the count the counter model to that being one more based on sort of paradigms where you have certain periods where sort of knowledge takes a certain type of form and then um big shifts where either new theories come up or new uh, philosophical ways of thinking become preeminent both in society i suppose also in sort of like more mm. specifically in philosophical study or intellectual study in general kind of and that comes along and gives us a paradigm shift right which is yes. where the phrase comes from yeah so yeah putnam is reacting against that idea of like science is building ever more towards this great truth and he's basically was kind of just saying in that interview that he was like uh no because we have these theories different theories will come along um, and we'll kind of like replace other theories with this theory. Part of that theory will change. It's like ever changing, ever modular. Science has to be dynamic. One thing that I thought was really interesting, <laughs> and this is going to show off my laymanism a bit, because the interviewer and Hillary Putnam were both kind of saying like, when you talk about science as being ever dynamic and stuff, it's like scientists have known that for a while, right? They've kind of known that like Newton might not have known that, but like they've been treating science like this for a long time ever since like you know like before like quant like he basically had the like idea where it's like if you talk to some scientists about the field that they study they won't be able to tell you what it is because they're like i don't know like quantum theory i don't know i'm just trying to figure it out like string theory all this different stuff there's stuff that we understand now that we're trying to study that is so complicated and at least for the time being so far out of our grasp that it's like you couldn't really explain what it is, <laughs> even though you spend your whole life studying it, right? Um, and I thought that was interesting because it's like, okay, well, if scientists have known that forever, then the philosophy of science just seems so interesting to me because it seems like a lot of philosophers trying to explain things that scientists already know. Yeah, that, does yeah. that make sense? Is there <laughs> anything mean, valid yeah, to yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's basically the tenor of the interview. And it's mm. also quite a substantive aspect in this chapter as well, is that like, Philosophy needs to catch up with science in some yeah. respects. Well, yeah. the philosophy of science um, isn't really engaging with the activity that scientists are engaged in. Kind mm. of and to some extent, that's fair, right? If you want to take a step back and decide, well, what would ideal and pure science actually be? Um, I mean, fair enough. 
it's a reasonable activity to engage in. Mm. Um, it becomes apparent in this text uh, some of the problems with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, that sort of that that view is quite thoroughly criticised. In the in this text, like Karl Popper becomes the standard bearer uh, of somebody who is a philosopher of science who is seeking to say what uh, what pure uh, scientific practice ought be, regardless mm. of mm. what it is that scientists actually do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it seems like you could just go and see what science... Uh, maybe that's a little empirical, but it's like, just see what scientists are doing. Because presumably they're going to be doing the most logical thing. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. I thought a lot of this was like, how would a scientist studying physics react to that? Although it's interesting because he did bring up the idea of like, what is even science? Because it's like, if you were to go to like science department on like a college campus or something, a lot of the like physicists would be like social sciences. That's not science. And then like a lot of mathematicians would be like physics. Eh, I mean, yeah, I guess it's just mm -hmm. applied math. I don't know. I thought that was very interesting. Um, there is a bit of a gap though. I feel like between philosophy of science and science a little bit. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. Well, I mean, perhaps philosophy of science, um, when represented by Hillary Putnam in this case, yeah. his primary motivation seems to be to, um, engage with the actual activity of science kind of thing or yeah. with, with what it is that scientists are doing kind of thing yeah um, but yeah yeah interesting stuff so I guess like wh why even <laughs> why study the philosophy of science right and I guess it, it does come back to that idea that we brought up about how science is ever changing which means that our understanding of the way things work is ever changing so my general understanding <laughs> of the history of the way we've studied science could be wrong but in Newtonian times, we were a little reductive, right? We thought that uh, there's this general idea of like, okay, well, uh, uh, physics is basically just applied chemistry and, uh, you know, biology is kind of just applied physics and psychology is just applied biology and uh, anthropology is just applied uh uh, you know, psychology, so forth and so forth. So you can kind of understand anthropology and the way people work by studying individual atoms. Now we know that that's not true, right? Because there are emergent qualities in science where things are greater than the sum of their parts, right? So it's like, you can't understand how people are going to act in their communities based on like physics, right? And I think that that has now, again, this is something that I feel like scientists understand, but maybe like laymen don't understand. And maybe this is the value of philosophy of science is kind of like trying to bridge that gap between scientists and laymen. And there are big implications for how we understand science as being studied and our understanding of the world and not just for scientists. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like there has been a bit of a like rebirth of this idea of like reductivism a bit with guys like... Um, He's a guy who's always on Bill Maher, who wrote the book during the Bush years about, like, in being in favor of, like, Muslim Holocaust. He's um, the guy who has the short hair, white guy. Uh, Sam, is it Sam? Yeah, yeah, Harris. Sam Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there are guys like I that. I said Sam Cedar. No, Sam, <laughs> Sam Cedar, yeah. I almost said Sam Smith. <laughs> um, uh, but I feel like there is kind of like this modern misconstruing of science that does have social implications right kind of like rebirth of reduction of reductivism um kind of like going back to enlightenment ideas and i think maybe that's kind of where we find the value of like maybe why we're reading this is because there are social implications to the philosophy of science what do you think sure i mean certainly this essay is designed to um 
or it makes preeminent the idea of scientific theories having real value when they allow for um, a modification or a la- a la- or, or a modification of human behavior mm. or more simply they theory influencing uh, human practice yeah um, and sort of like allow for interventions in the world putnam criticizes popper mm. for having quite a reactionary uh, theory of science now popper probably quite fairly described as a reactionary person in terms of its politics sure um and i think perhaps that can you could you could perhaps say that that could stem from this very um rigid and conservative view of um what science is and also um a kind of privileging of the empirical sciences over um what you might call social science sure um and also and also like just a very sort of a, a type of engagement which the with the world which is very sterile um which is not intended to inform a sort of practical engagement with the world but is meant to be kind of very much removed from it or at least comes across as being very mm. much removed from it um i suppose you could probably draw a line between that kind of engagement with science and um the one represented by sam harris to some extent like yeah. another quite reactionary character i mean he probably yeah. described himself as a little liberal <laughs> the way that everybody describes themselves as liberals these days everybody is a liberal that's why <laughs> um but but quite a reactionary character sure. pr- probably quite similarly like wants to um sterilize and um reduce severely any emphasis that is put on actually um trying to seek progressive advancement in human affairs and human behavior kind of thing Mm. and rather would like to work out what the the um the laws and principles of the world are kind of thing i suppose that's quite good you you could it's a general quite a general description of conservatism to some extent Mm. um which is very much like in favor of the present state of things very resistant to development and change to some extent yeah um and what you you get reflected in sort of Karl popper's approach to um science a kind of like quite a very conservative um approach a theory of science which is designed very much to promote really strict skepticism and Mm. to keep um to really privileges the world of theory and not the world of practice in any way kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe we should expand a bit on what Putnam's criticizing here, which is basically Popper. He criticizes a lot. There was one line that I thought was really funny where he criticizes Chomsky, which was so funny. <laughs> but um, that's yeah, like Chom- little... Chomsky gets an honorable mention in this. He gets, he gets an honorable mention. mention in this. They all get <laughs> mentions. Um, so Popper, my understanding from this reading is that Popper's views of how science works is that we come up with theories and a theory then becomes accepted when you exhaust your attempts at falsifying it. Right? Is that a fair assessment? I think so. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, or rather, that like on, that all legitimate scientific practice is the effort to falsify theories. Yeah. Um, yeah. At its most extreme, it it um, that doesn't even really lead to a position where you can legitimately say this thing is true. Yeah. Um, it's just it's not it, it seems like you're meant to just constantly be stuck in this bind of um an effort to falsify mm. uh, and never reach the point where 
you can sort of take a sigh of relief and be like, I've probably <laughs> sort of thoroughly proven this thing. Yeah. If not true, then true under all sort of reasonable circumstances yeah. that, that's sort of available to me kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Pop, I mean, Popper's, Popper's kind of setting out to do a, a very specific thing. Uh, Hilary Putnam describes him as a radical Humean, um, which is making reference to a sort of like logical, uh, a, a sort of yeah, a, a logical fallacy, I suppose, that is uh, was identified by uh, Scottish philosopher David Hume, mm. um, which is basically saying that there, Popper's critique is of this idea of induction. Um, basically, I think his idea is that. It is unreasonable. It's logically unreasonable to make a statement that is that goes something like this, um, because of all instances of an event that I've observed have all resulted in sort of outcome A. Mm. All future instances of that thing will also all result in outcome A, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's 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 not it's not a sound logical principle, basically. Um, and if you want, he basically basically says that if you want to somehow somehow define a principle of induction by which it means like a rule that allows for induction to be um a sort of sound logical practice you either have to find some way of of sort of like basing a rule that allows for induction in some kind of other logical process mm. some kind of um you need to you need to find some kind of physical law which can be known prior to experience of the world which would allow for induction to be a legitimate activity. Mm. Um, or if you wanted to say, as quite a lot of scientists do, well, induction is what we do. Uh, so, like, how can you go about, like, criticising? Because basically what you're doing is criticising the very activity of science itself, right? Yeah. Observation of the world. Um, and then sort of, like, seeking to prove or legitimate the observations that you've made to some extent. Mm. Or find... Uh, rationale for why the world behaves in certain ways um if you if if you want but he makes a criticism of that kind of reaction which is to say well um if you are going to say if you're going to make induction like a legitimate rule a sort of like basic mode of human behavior then you need to find some kind of other way of legitimizing that choice kind of thing um which meets with a kind of like um or would would fulfil certain like uh, logical criteria, and basically yeah. he comes away with the idea that there there basically is no way to validate the practice of induction logically. Yeah, yeah. And his his radical solution is this is to basically say, I mean, Hume left this question unanswered. Popper thinks he's answered this question by saying, "Well, we'll just say that science doesn't <laughs> solve anything. induce at all. Yeah, all it does is." Attempt to falsify, mm. and sort of he sort of flips flips things on their head a little bit, and just um, not really answering and the sort question. Of finds a way to slither out of it to some extent. Yeah, um, I mean it's quite it's quite an ingenious solution. It's tricky, um, but it doesn't really correlate with scientific practice in any way. Yeah, um, so yeah. I don't know if that's clear to some extent. So no, that, absolutely. That, that, so that's how he comes to settle on this idea that um, what scientists do is. Um, come up with theories and then seek to ruthlessly disprove their theories. Um, and if you're, if you're going to take a slightly less strict approach to that kind of um, process of criticising or um, 
engaging in scientific activity, you might say, well, once a theory has withstood a certain a, a sufficient number of tests, well, you can maybe um, you can you can maybe assume it to be at yeah. least conditionally true. Yeah. Um, although Popper's even quite hostile to that kind of approach. Mm. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's all interesting. Um, I'm gonna just toss a quote at you, Dan. Where he Putnam here is basically saying, if you just treat science as a way to falsify things, what's the point, right? Yeah. So he says, if this law is highly corroborated, if this law is scientifically accepted and like locutions merely meant this law has withstood severe test and there were no suggestion at all that a law which has to withstood severe test is likely to withstand further tests, such as the tests involved in an application or attempted application, then Popper would be right. But then science would be a wholly unimportant activity. It would be practically unimportant because scientists would never t tell us that any law or theory is safe to rely upon for practical purposes, and it would be unimportant for the purpose of understanding, since on Popper's view, scientists never tell us that any law or theory is true or even probable. Knowing that certain conjectures, according to Popper, all scientific laws are provisional conjectures have not yet been refuted is not understanding anything so yeah and it is interesting because i feel like whenever you bring up philosophy of science to people who um uh have a bit of a background in it Karl popper's name just gets thrown out there as being like the dude right he is like the person who was like you know nah, maybe that's just for philosophers i don't know about actual scientists but like he's the guy who kind of had it all figured out and it's funny because he is i hadn't really realized it but he's totally doing what you're saying which is just Kind of like putting the question further down the road and being like syntactically tricky as opposed mm -hmm. to just like answering why and how we study science. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. And it is, his idea is like, yeah, there's no real point in science in that. It's like, oh, then we don't understand anything. It's just, yeah, this is an idea. I, mean, we haven't, I don't know. Maybe it's not true. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's funny. It's very interesting. And so then Putnam's idea is a little bit more complicated and he uses some uh, equations. Not really equations, but like flow charts, basically, <laughs> to kind of prove it um, to where he comes from in science. Um, and it involves the name of the show, which is interesting. Look at that. Um, could you, because I still don't fully understand it, do you think you could give a bit of a rundown on, <laughs> on Putnam's ideas? Because I can't. <laughs> um, well, initially, uh, Putnam criticizes Popper for, in actual fact, doing something very similar to yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you you only have to twist the words a little bit to get something quite similar to induction, right? You've uh, you ra rather than sort of like um, letting your observations of the world dictate what it is, the sort of like the letting the obs the observations that you have ground your theories. Um, you just let uh, theories which have withstood a sufficient amount of criticism become be be sort of like elevated to mm. uh, true accepted status yeah thing. yeah yeah um so basically what um putnam does is actually sort of lumps the inductivists in with popper to some extent um by basically saying that both the inductivists and um karl popper are basically maintain that there is what he calls a link between theory and prediction so you allow you you basically have your basic theory and then you take from your basic theory a series of predictions about the how the world is which you then seek to test okay now um what hillary putnam does is he doesn't deny that 
there are certain types of scientific practice which engage in that type of reasoning. Um, but he also suggests that there are a great many scientific theories that don't actually follow that kind of logic at all. Mm. Um, he basically he basically suggests that there are certain theories which actually don't gen don't in and of themselves generate predictions. Mm. Um, the one he uses as an example is um, Newton's uh, theory of universal gravitation. Although he does make the claim that the, the, this this idea of his could be basically applied to um, Darwinianism or any number of other kind of like scientific sure. theories, um, and he doesn't think that these hit the the sort of like theory prediction paradigm and his I shouldn't use I shouldn't say use the word paradigm because the word paradigm <laughs> uh -oh. is going to become a speaking later. <laughs> if the if the theory prediction um, uh, form of scientific practice. Is one type. His the one that he counterposes to it doesn't isn't like um, uh, opposed to it. It's not an alternate way of doing things. He he suggests later on that there's a kind of like dialectical relationship between the two. Like one allows for the other, and mm. vice versa. Um, I don't understand Newtonian gravitation sufficiently <laughs> well. What <laughs> to s explain why it is. That Hillary Putnam um, says that the formula of Newtonian gravitation uh, doesn't actually imply um, any sort of like predictive statements. Yeah. There's nothing actually predictive in the formula itself. What he says allows for theories of the nature of uh, Newtonian uh, gravitation what he calls a scientific law, because it's, it is a scientific law. Sure. Uh, what he says allows those kind of theories to make predictive statements is when you connect that theory with a series of auxiliary statements. Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay, that makes um, a lot more sense. And these auxiliary statements take a series of forms, um, as Hillary Putnam describes them, the first kind of collection that he introduces to are a series of actual simplifications. Mm. Um, so they'd be really quite highly offensive to Karl Popper because basically what you're doing is you're taking your theory and you are saying, okay, I'm going to apply this theory to a scenario where certain variables I know not to be true. Yeah. So in the case of universal gravitation, um, or, or things that we are not sure whether they are true or not, so Newton makes some um, some assumptions. He assumes that um, uh, celestial bodies, uh, it, 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 when he's using these calculations about gravity to describe the movements of the planets, he makes an assumption that the planets move in a void and don't move through yeah. some type of medium. Yeah. Now, he didn't know that, and the theory of the ether survived <laughs> for quite a long period of time, this concept that, like... Um, are you going to talk about Lord of the Rings? <laughs> I was just going to say, I think really quickly, I think we should bring the the, the theory of the ether back because it's pretty cool. Yeah, anyway, yeah, moving yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Falsify that, scientists. <laughs> I've long had this joke that um, uh, I don't actually believe in germs. I just believe in miasmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. Classic Dan joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. Hilarious. 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 <laughs> Um, but but also like Newton makes certain simplifications to the theory where um, 
all other things being equal, if you're trying to describe the motion of two bodies, say uh, the moon and the earth, there's really no reason for you to have to factor in the gravi gravitational pull of the other bodies in the solar system. Yeah. I mean, they do have an effect, but it's negligible. And so you can basically just discount it when you're trying to make predictions about the movement of like um, just the moon around the earth, as it were. So hang on, does this does this then imply that like this is what you do kind of when you're working with more variables than you can properly either understand or fit into your equation? Because presumably, right, like back then and even now, there are just so many variables in the way that celestial bodies move that it's hard to make general predictions with the set of information that we have. And right, because he uses the orbit of Mercury, which has a deviation that we literally still don't understand why it does no, we that. we do understand it now. We do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did this happen? <laughs> Einstein. <laughs> Einstein? Who the fuck? I I, my, I, it's not really in this text, so I'm just going to say something that may or not be true. Okay, why not? <laughs> I think the problem with the way Mercury moves is that it's so close to the gravity well of the sun okay. that you have to take into effect sort of Einsteinian relativity to explain its movement. The by, by, by which I mean that like, um, obviously, th I don't know, I don't know what, what variable it is in this instance, which is being affected by, um, by the gravity well of the sun, but you have to understand that what's actually happening is uh, celestial bodies are warping space time Wow. And obviously, like Newton didn't know that space time was a thing, idiot. Or, <laughs> um, and it was so it wasn't until Einstein that you could explain quite how Mercury behaved. Wow, um, I could have told you that. Anyway, whatever. But <laughs> Jack raises a really interesting point that basically, just because Newtonian gravity wasn't able to explain the orbit of Mercury around the sun didn't mean that anybody was like, right, we're going to throw out <laughs> this otherwise perfectly uh, plausible scientific theory that fits all these other cases really well. Because in a popper sense, right, that would that could would almost be, be seen as falsifying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, but in this instance, this is another type of auxiliary statement where you're just like, we can just, we, we're happy to let it be the case that we do not understand what is happening in this instance. Gotcha. Um he makes it. There's another. There's another example he uses. This is. I'm not sure when this paper was written. It's quite old, uh, and relatively old. Yeah. Um, he he uses the example of dark stars. Is that right? It's another another case where like um, there were there were deviations observed in how certain stars were moving. Mm. Um, but the auxiliary statement, the sort of the, the sort of ad hoc fix that was applied was like, well, there must be some other gravitational body that we just can't see that these stars are interacting with. We yeah. don't know what it is, but we're going to say it's probably there's probably something there. We can spend some time trying to work out what that thing is. Yeah. Um, but let's not but let, but let's shift not anytime. throw the whole whole yeah. thing off kind of thing. Throw yeah, the whole yeah. thing out. Yeah. I don't know whether those dark stars ended up being like uh, brown dwarfs. Or dwarves. white dwarves or black holes. It might be white any dwarves. number of the rest of the thing. I don't know. Brown, you tell me they're brown, dwarves? Dwar brown dwarves are failed stars. Failed stars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, sort of <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're really massive bodies that weren't big enough to actually generate fusion in there. Manlet stars. I think I, white dwarves are sort of remnants of stars that have 
supernova done in the gotcha. cores and stuff. Mm. Black holes, obviously, yeah. Sure. Uh, Your classic black hole. Of what a black hole yeah. is, I do. You know what? I actually thought I the black hole, like the visual representation of a black hole that we got last year, year before, this year. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah what is time? That's that's a really interesting. <laughs> that's a really interesting example of kind of what's being talked about here, right? Because the way that that worked, it wasn't that we just invented a telescope where we could get a photo of a black hole, right? What it was was that the scientist—I forget her name—but she um, invented an algorithm that, like, through studying every photo, basically, was able to construct what a black hole might look like from the like barely like any amount of data that we got from a telescope pointing at a black hole yeah, because it just yeah, yeah. it's like oh this is what everything in the universe looks like in all of photos yeah because i think it was i think um they used a series of radio telescopes mm. and they had to use radio telescopes on like opposite sides of the uh well on the same side of the earth but you could functionally use that there's something i don't know it's quite it happens quite a lot in in astronomy i think i don't know whether you can do it with like um light wave astronomy if that's the right term but like radio wave astronomy you can like you can uh, effectively create a bigger receiver by Mm. having using like uh, disparate telescopes or what have you to sort of so basically they've created this huge lens by like using telescopes on various parts of the world kind of thing Mm. um and then received this radio data and then as you say like algorithmically turned generated Mm. a a visual depiction of the sort of like what it probably looks like yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. i mean but but it but um that picture fit quite closely with like the sort of like digital descriptions or like um Mm. theories about how pretty cool yeah it was neat neat. looks like what you'd think it's funny isn't it these things (laughs) that happen and they're like whoa and then they sort of like drift they lose their kind of yeah i know yeah lose their uh that happens uh, all the time, I feel like, in astronomy. Because it's yeah. like something will happen and you'll <laughs> be like, what? <laughs> and then you'll just forget about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, got, that's what's going to happen when we discover aliens. It's going to be like... Discover half, aliens? Yeah, half a day of people being like, whoa, yeah. and then actually... Like, yeah, and then we'll avatar them. Old hat. Yeah, yeah. We'll get their unobtainium. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I do hope those aliens are more advanced than we are. Because if we're yeah. more advanced than they are, we are going to go and fuck up their shit. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> But if they're more advanced than us, why is what? Yeah. All right. Well, that's a conversation for I another time. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll read some Posadas one day. That'll <laughs> tell us all about aliens. Aliens. Um, so I'm going to reread, to get us back on track, a quote that we read from our intro episode, right? I believe this was from the intro episode. Yes. Yes. Um, where Putnam's talking about auxiliary statements. And it's basically just to sum up what Dan was just saying. He says, when the predictions about the orbit of Uranus that were made on the basis of the theory of universal gravitation and the assumption that the known planets were all there were turned out to be wrong, Leverrier in France and Adams in England simultaneously predicted that there must be another planet. In fact, that planet was discovered, and it was Neptune. Had this modification of the auxiliary statement been successful, not been successful, sorry, still others might have been tried. Uh, for example, postulating a medium through which planets are moving instead of a hard vacuum or postulating um, significant non-gravitational forces. So that's exactly what you're saying. Um, they noticed this deviancy in the uh, orbit of, what was it, Uranus? Mm-hmm. Uranus, And they, instead of just throwing out universal gravitation, the theory, because they were like, look at this, we falsified it. They were like, oh, something else must be going on because we kind of like trust in this um, paradigm i guess of universal gravitation and, I, and that kind of just shows that science is a little bit more like 
whoa, I don't know, maybe this. Ah, it's a little bit like wackier than you <laughs> yeah, might yeah, think. Yeah, it's yeah, people yeah. just being like yeah. doing their best with the information that they have. Yeah. Right? But it was quite a remarkable discovery because not only were they like, oh, there must be another planet out there, but if we apply um, Newtonian yeah. gravitation to the observational data that we have, it's not only there must be another planet out there, but there must be another planet out there that has this very specific orbit. All we need to do yeah. is ask an observatory to check in this place, and lo and behold, there it was. That's there's insane. another planet. <laughs> That's and, insane. But, but this, this this sort of comes back to what I was saying before about these two types of sort of like approach to scientific theory not being mutually exclusive. Because what's happened there is we've taken Putlam's new version, what he uses, what he describes as schema two yeah. of uh, of his like little uh, diagrams of theories. Mm. Um, we've taken that schema of we need to work out what auxiliary statements we can add to our theory to fit with our observational data. And we've turned it into the first type of theory, which is the what, which is the theory prediction connection, right? Mm. So in that, what's happened there is they've been like, we've, they've taken their theory, they've made a prediction, oh, there must be a planet moving in orbit X, mm. and then they can go and f test their prediction kind of thing. That's, it's quite, so so um, so that's um, more like your conventional view of what scientists do rather than sort of Putnam's sort of alternate view of what it is that scientists are doing. Exactly. So the, so the two sort of theories work in conjunction with one another. And you and you can see very much how this is not the typical view of science as progressing towards this logical end of understanding the universe. Because science is a lot more haphazard than that. And yeah, it's not yeah, just... Yeah. The metaphor that Putnam used was putting theories in a chest, the chest of like knowledge, and you put another theory in the chest and you build towards this full chest of knowledge. Yeah. He's like, that's not what it is at all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In this essay, he talks quite a lot about um, Thomas Kuhn mm. and who he, who he counterposes to um, uh, Popper. Popper, but also it's, it's sort of it's Kuhn's theory of a scientific paradigm or a theoretical paradigm is much like what, what we were trying to describe uh, or what Jack's trying to describe in terms of like, um, uh, not, not, uh, it's science not being structured as this sort of like continuous collection of um, data that kind of builds on one another, builds on itself, but rather um, there are theoretical paradigms in which science is operating. Mm. These paradigms are sort of de defined by. Um, quite sort of totemic theories in this case like newtonian gravitation um and once you are operating inside of that that sort of theoretical paradigm well for one what's nobody's really trying to disprove the paradigm nobody's trying to disprove newtonian gravitation obviously mm. if something came along and sort of knocked it for six so thoroughly that you had to forget it you you would do yeah. Obviously, like if the you know, if the laws of gravity suddenly just broke down, you'd be, that would probably be quite a severe paradigm shift sure. that happened. Sure. Um, but it's not space. like science science uh, in the way that um, Karl Popper describes are constantly trying to disprove uh, the theories with which they're operating. No, quite the opposite. Most of the time, they're trying to almost def they're, they're not even calling into question the theories with which they're operating. Mm. Um, so. Uh, Thomas Kuhn uses two phrases. He, he describes the period of science that's operating within a paradigm as being normal science. Um, and then he suggests that what scientists are doing in this period of normal science is actually um, puzzling. Mm. They're just sort of solving these sort of like puzzle mysteries 
sort of things that are are discovered to be uh, problematic with their paradigm. Um, so yeah, that's what I've got. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that that whole idea of a paradigm shift is crazy. Um, or, I, can't, I mean, I can't think of any modern examples. Um, I like the idea of like a like a paradigm shift in like biology where they're like, wait a minute, monkeys can make things <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. Presumably it's one not as stupid as that. Monkeys can drive cars. Um, so let's run. Well, I, guess, I mean, I guess like, I mean, I don't know whether like Darwinian evolution founded oh, sure. biology. I suppose it didn't, but like it mm. was a, it was, it's, it's become the paradigm of mm. biology. Mm. Um and I, th- I mean, a theory, that the best evidence for which now is based on sort of like genome sequencing, something which was totally impossible sure. Sure. Uh, in the 19th century kind of thing. Um, hmm. I don't know what I'll give you a paradigm shift. statement that is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll give you a, a biology paradigm. one. Um, you ever heard of the Tasmanian tiger? Why don't you tell me? <laughs> Have you heard of the Tasmanian devil? Yeah. So, okay. Tasmanian tiger was this thing that, yeah, that only lived in Tassie. Um I don't know how to describe it. It was like a dog, but it was longer and a longer snout. And it was I think weird. I've seen pictures of this. I think yeah, I and they had snouts. I may have watched some videos on, on yeah. YouTube about it. Yeah, and like everything good and pure about Tasmania, when the British showed snouts. up, they killed all of them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, I see. They killed all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, much like the people who lived there, and there was one that was left and it was put in the zoo, and then it died. And what do you know? They're not left. Give you a paradigm shift. The whole western part of Tasmania, there's nothing there other than really thick forest, right? Uh-huh. I bet you they're still around. There's a paradigm shift. If that happens, oh. <laughs> they're, they're still around. Um, that was a cryptozoology. Cryptozoology. <laughs> uh, cryptozoology statements. Yeah, cryptozoological auxiliary <laughs> statements. Um, so, let's round this out should... then by discussing the use of this towards Marxism. I think because that's there's, why we should go. Yeah, because there's only really one reference to Marxism in this piece. I'll just read it really quickly. So he says, finally, the failure to see the primacy of practice leads Popper to some rather reactionary political conclusions. Marxists believe that there are laws of society, that these laws can be known, and that, I'm going to just say humans, can and should act on this knowledge. It is not my purpose here to argue that this Marxist view is correct, but surely any view that rules this out a priori is reactionary. And I guess a priori just basically means as theoretical, not as like... A priori stuff that's known prior to your experience. Oh, okay, gotcha. So, like, um, you can prove that one plus one is two <laughs> without, like, observation of the world kind of thing. Gotcha. As opposed to a posteriori, which huh. is... Um, you see something you, and then... Yeah, you, you're based on yourself. Oh, gotcha, okay. Yet this is precisely what Popper does. And in the name of an anti-a priori philosophy of knowledge exclamation point he gets he gets towards the end he gets a little catty it's very funny (laughs) that's a bit of a dick that's a bit of a dick um hang on where's that bit about okay really quickly i just want to read that thing where he says about chomsky there is no logic of discovery in that sense there's no logic of testing either all of these formal algorithms proposed for testing by carnap by popper by chomsky etc are to speak impolitely Ridiculous. (laughs) Ridiculous. <laughs> I loved that. Um, yeah, we can't explain why why he's criticizing Chomsky, but it's funny. but it's funny. I think it's funny when people criticize Chomsky. I don't know. It's just funny. Um, it's so rarely done. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever criticizes Chomsky. Um, but yes. So to tie it all up, he's saying that if you take this view of falsification of theories as Popper does, and try and apply it to a social world. It's going to wind up being reactionary, right? 
Um, and I, I kind of am confused at what he says about Marxists here, because when I first read it, I was like, oh, is he like slamming Marxists? But it's like, no, he's not necessarily agreeing with them. But he's saying that if you just throw out everything that Marxists say about society without really, um, without, would it be fair to say any empirical like observation and data, then that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I feel like in this instance, he's just taking Marxists as um, the most sort of like dominant theoretical paradigm of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who who try and engage in this type of activity, which is one which is allowing theory to influence practice, with the ultimate aim of um, transforming the world. Sure, gotcha. Um, and so, Popper's is an incredibly reactionary theory because it really doesn't allow for a practice of like social change to to some extent. Gotcha. Um, what's more, he's criticizing Popper for privileging the so privileging empirical science over other types of sort of like social science, shall we say, or an application of basically saying that it has to be allowed that um, people can engage in this kind of reasoning in order to work out what their um, practice in the world ought be. Gotcha. Um, people in all fields sort of look at the world um, see what their evidence, what evidence they have for how the world behaves, and then try and act on that behavior um, in their engagement with the world. I'm not explaining that very well. Yeah, but, yeah I gotcha. I gotcha. But like, um, yeah, people, people inform, people allow their observations of the world to inform their practice. Gotcha. Um, um, <laughs> there's a quite a nice, there's a quite a nice quote early on. Where he says something like, "It's really, I mean, it's really terrible advice to give to people, um, not to use their prior experience to yeah. uh, to inform their behaviour." And then he, he uses this example, which is um, uh, quite. Uh, Should I find it? Why don't you find it? Quite friendly to us, boss. <laughs> like the... There it is. He says, "The advice to regard all knowledge as provisional conjectures is not is also not respon not reasonable." After impersonating him, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Consider men striking against sweatshop conditions. Should they say it is only a provisional conjecture that the boss is a bastard? Let us call off our strike and try appealing to his better nature. The distinction between knowledge and conjecture does real work in our lives. Popper can maintain his extreme skepticism only because of his extreme tendency to regard theory as an end to itself. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For a show where all yeah, we talk about is theory. That's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, don't wait for the counterexample mm. of your observations before you're allowed to engage with the world. Yeah. If your boss has proven himself to be a bastard, assume that he's going to be a bastard under all conditions. Yeah. Don't wait for wait for the counterexample to reveal itself and in that intervening period acquiesce to all yeah. of his bastardry <laughs> bastardry it is funny because i wonder how much philosophy of science uh affects the actual practice of science we talk about this a little bit but it's like if you're an astrophysicist in the examples he gives i feel like they were just acting logically and the fact that they chose to use these auxiliary statements to make discoveries I, I do wonder how much that was actually informed by them sitting down and being like, well, how should we sit down and discuss Yeah, this? I mean, they you weren't know? following some kind of formal logic for how they... Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very an interesting question, like what use is the science, <laughs> philosophy of science to scientists? Yeah. But I mean, I suppose, like, what use is 
Eddie type of Eddie Brock oh philosophy to the people engaged. Sorry, that's a bit of a slight against philosophers <laughs> and philosophers. Um, but I think this has a lot to do with, like we said, our understanding as laymen of the way science is studied, which informs our understanding of the world. I suppose yeah, yeah. to give this a Marxist bent, I think it's important to understand the ways in which science is actually studied as well, because. If you're presumably if you're a scientist in America and you want to study something because you're like, I think I have an idea about this. I really want to study this. It's not like you can just study that, you know, you have to get money to study it. You have to get a grant to study these things. And I think any scientist could probably tell you that, like, the things that you get grants to do are there's a social element to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's like the people who give the biggest grants are the government and the government has things that they need right and if you're getting money through a private institution then they have things that they want as well they have motivations as well mm -hmm. and you know, to give this to go even further with this most of the time that has to do with defense department that has to do with uh intelligence so you know yeah i mean there's some aspects of like thomas Kuhn's theory of a paradigm which apply here right like hmm. um people were operating in a certain paradigm are only actually going to ask themselves certain types of questions to some extent. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, and what will they take, what questions are allowed to be asked are, are variables yeah. such as you've just described, right? Like, mm. um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, social implications, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, what do we value? What type of knowledge but also, do but we also value? But also there's a more innocent way of like, yeah, yeah, what we individuals living in a certain type of theoretical paradigm mm. what kind of things are we impassioned to research and look into quite often they're something that we've learned about the world that we're into and we want to sort of substantiate and work with and corroborate mm -hmm. kind of thing more than like um how to give everyone we, a good we're, quality we're of not life. all desperately trying to like um um I don't know. Disprove. Oh, I, I was just about to say. Maybe we. Maybe we are though. To some extent. Oh my like, god. You and I are engaged in an effort to, um, to sort of theoretically or allow for a theoretical dismantling of certain types of paradigms in yeah. place of others, kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we can. I suppose we could ask ourselves like, what kind of paradigm is Marx's theory? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. Absolutely. How um, how Totemic has it been? Well, these are questions um, we've, we've, sort of like we've grappled with. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This is when we talk about, like, I mean, the line that we always bring up is, like, a lot of stuff from the Communist Manifesto, but it's, like, something that set a paradigm for Marxists for a long, long time and still to this day mm -hmm. is that line about, like, society splitting up into two hostile camps. That totally set a paradigm, which now we know isn't really true. There aren't mm -hmm. two camps mm -hmm. that you can kind well, of they, see. Well, there maybe there are two camps, but, but there aren't, those camps aren't classes, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot more. We, yeah, yeah. yeah, I suppose we should give a, a mention to Alan Gilbert again. Oh, in this book, uh, Marxism and Politics. That Ooh. was where Marx is politics. Marx is politics. Oh, God, Damn I it! I can't do it. <laughs> um, I think I misread it, misquoted it last time. Um, it was from him that we we discovered this essay um, by Hilary Putnam. Okay, and it's it, it was he in the introduction to his book who likens Marx's. Um, theoretical approach shall we say marx's practice to um the one described by hillary putnam uh, in terms of a combination of theory with auxiliary statements yeah um yes. so much of marx's writing is like suggesting some basic laws and then um applying all of these myriad sort of auxiliary statements to um 
explain how those laws actually apply themselves in the real world. Yeah. Basin um, superstructure is like a great example of yeah, perhaps a paradigm that we need to get past. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like th- things like um, Marx's law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit. Yeah. Like Marx suggests there is this tendency toward profits to fall and then suggests all of these ways in which <laughs> it can be that law is offset by all sorts of other things and so yeah. all sorts of conditions, right? Yeah. Um, to some extent, it's a distinction between like, um, uh, like abstract and concrete to some extent. Like you have all these abstract theories... But our work as Marxists is not to get stuck in sort of like um, historic ways of thinking about um, these theories, but to take the theories and apply them to our present conditions. Yeah. Um, and basically, that's all that Putnam is describing as scientists of, of doing, right? Like, we they have this basic theory of um, Newtonian gravitation, and then they apply it... They, they they apply what he described as boundary conditions. Well, the auxiliary statements to some extent set boundary conditions, but basically they just like um, define the way in which the theory is actually applied to the world. Mm. Um, and it's only with that real world knowledge that you can actually make that theory count for anything. Sure. Um, so as it sort of like um, applies to a practice that we would like to promote, the reason why sort of, Auxiliary statements is probably a reasonable title for our podcast. Mm-hmm. To some oh, let's hear it. <laughs> um, is that it's, it's that kind of practice that we'd like to promote, right? Like, yeah, constantly taking um, theories and then subjecting them to uh, uh, analysis under real world conditions. Like, yeah. how can we take our abstract ideas and um, make them useful and practicable? How can we base practice upon theory? And you can only base practice upon theory by um, putting them into, uh, sort of applying them to the world as you observe it. And yeah. constantly changing your observations of the world um, when things are found to be flawed. Now, yeah. I, feel, I mean, it's it's fully plausible that, 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 that other paradigms for, um, I mean, I, I, would, I would stand quite close, I would stand closely with... Um, Marx having set a theoretical paradigm for how capitalism behaves. And I don't think that paradigm has uh, changed and it doesn't look likely to be superseded at any point yet. Mm. Um, and I suppose we're, we're also, it's also incumbent on us to try and work out what like um, basic um, Marxist sort of like political theories might be. Mm. Um theories upon which we can um add sort of auxiliary statements to make them practicable for our real world experience so i suppose like um if we go back to our very first episode on class right like Mm. you can take a load of um theories from marx about how class is fundamental to the structuring of um social relations under any particular economic model um but it doesn't tell you a great deal about um, how the relationship between classes, the alliances or the conflicts between classes are playing out at any particular time in history. Yeah. You really have to um, apply certain conditions. You have to update the ideas as as Marx did through his life, um, as um, Ralph Miliband does in his book to some extent, like gives mm. us some examples of how we're going to have to develop these ideas. Um so that's the practice that we want to engage in to some extent is yeah um, constantly developing theories developing that falsifying maybe falsifying 
Yeah, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. Speaking of auxiliary statements, welcome. My name is Jack. <laughs> My name is Dan. Um, we've done it again, folks. We've done it again, folks. I, you know what? <laughs> now, having heard you explain it, really enjoyed that. Nice. And I think that it is very um, useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, just, yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I guess all this is is just an exercise in thinking critically, right? Uh-huh. And understanding what it means to think critically, um, which is, yeah, take the name of the show. That's what we're attempting to do here. That's what you should all be trying to do. Um, Can I hit you with a little bit of um, oh, fuck. Karl Popper trivia? Oh my God, hit mm. me. Karl Popper was a founding member of the Mont Pelerin Society. Do you know anything about the Mont Pelerin Society? I've heard the name. The Mont Pelerin Society Don't was like societies. also founded by um, Milton Friedman. Ah, uh, maybe Hayek, not Freeman, maybe Hayek. The Vienna Circle probably would have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but um, basically, they it, what it became was a <laughs> a think tank designed to propagate what eventually became neoliberalism and pedophilia, presumably, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. If you're in a society, no, I yeah. I was ready. I was ready to enter those sort of podcasts, like. Um, <laughs> To, div- to, div- to to sort of slam Karl Popper's name and sort of tarnish him okay. with having been like a founding member of sort of like what became the sort of neoliberal uh, political paradigm to some extent. Um, now it, it actually turns out that when he when he was engaged with the Mont Pelerin Society, he was really advocating for having socialists and other people come into the group and sort oh. of having it be much more an open forum, and it was the sort of like. Hayekians who are much more like, no, this is going to be a closed group for um, propagating our sort of market uh, fundamentalism. Sick. Um, but yeah, yeah, he was, he was, I mean, he's, he's written quite uh, sort of like, he's incredible. He's, he's certainly an anti-Marxist in a lot of ways. Um, but I just, I just find it quite interesting to tie this, tie a person into an, into a uh, political paradigm that was in existence. I'm looking for more, Karl Popper trivia. Uh-huh. Um, not finding much. In 1919, he became attracted by Marxism, but subsequently yeah. joined the Association of Socialist School of Students, whatever. As, yeah, interesting. Uh, Popper, interesting man. Um, cool. Auxiliary statements. Hopefully we've made some. Nice. Presumably. Nice. Um, anything else? Um, where is this going to lead us? What, um, yeah, in what terms is of, next? What is next? What is next? I mean, I suppose... Um, I suppose what this the question that this sort of opens up for us is a more broad sort of like what is science and can Marxism mm. or can other social sciences or can other social theories be sciences? Yeah. Is Marxism a science? Yeah. Um, is psychoanalysis a science? Mm. Um, what is science? Quite. I mean, to some extent, we've I suppose we've got some we've got some answers from this text, or we can extrapolate some answers to that question from this text. Yeah. Um, and then also, I suppose there is the question of like, how has Marxism actually engaged historically with science? Um, obviously, Engels tried to write quite a lot about science and was heavily sure. influenced by the science of his day. Mm. Marx, to a lesser extent. Putnam, in um, that interview, called Engels the most scientifically well-read man of his time, which I thought was crazy. Really? Okay. Well, and then no, he kind no, of Marx pursued... Just like, just yeah, well, well person. Yeah, and, yeah, but yeah. then he kind of pursued... Pursued? pursued? continued to be like but he got a lot wrong <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah but he was yeah, yeah yeah but he basically i mean i mean one of the problems nowadays is to some extent marxists like read engels as science and then assume that it's up-to-date science kind of thing yeah. engels was up to date with the science of his day who would do like, that who would assume that we still don't know how mercury works <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't understand how i, I failed well, to explain to you well mercury. presumably so is this the book that the essay was in no no no, no. oh he was just quoting it 
yeah, Alan Gilbert like takes some examples of like Marxist praxis, like the stuff about like um, why didn't a strong working class movement develop in the second half of the twentieth, the nineteenth century sure. in in the UK? And yeah. he uses the example of like the discord between Irish yeah. or how, how the interests of Irish workers were played off against British yeah. workers to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. I think also it, this, this does now leave us in good stead to sort of like try oh, to further develop like what our basic theoretical categories are mm. um or try and work out what marxist basic theoretical categories are um and what marxist or marxian statements are more akin to auxiliary statements which are either like mm. correct or incorrect in their usage mm. and whether their usage is still um apposite yeah. to us today yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Have we done enough? Have we done enough? I don't know. Is there anything else? Um, I don't think so. I think, but yes, I think that maybe the lesson to be learned from reading something like this and why we're trying to read a lot of different stuff is don't just read sociology if you're attempting to understand the world. Read a lot of sociology. Read all. Read everything. But also... Uh, yeah, read a lot of other stuff. Read, uh, uh, you know, philosophy of science. Read history, obviously. Um, and yeah, I think, I forget who it was. There was some fantasy author who said something like, someone was like, how should I learn how to write fantasy? And he said, read everything but fantasy, you know? Okay. And it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's kind of a similar idea to if you really want to have a um, understanding of the world that is based on materialism and how things work, um, read a lot of different stuff. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I never would have read this on my own. I'll say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm pleased that we did. This, I mean, I mean, the, maybe the unstated primary motivation of this was just to explain the title of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the best definition you're ever going to get. Eleven episodes reason in. Reason and rationale for why the yeah. title is pod is, is the podcast is titled thusly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I hope you're happy. Hope you're happy. Next week, little teaser. We'll be back with one of our old friends. Um, so, oh, and, and we also, don't have many of those. So. Yeah. Also, Happy New Year! First auxiliary statement oh, yeah, of the New yeah, Year yeah. today. It's, it's, it's New Year's Day today. It is New Year's Day today. Wink, 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 wink. <laughs> um, hopefully, yes. Happy, happy 2021. 2021. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, man. I remember like when Simpsons episodes were doing like 2010 as like the future, and now it's 2020, dude. Yeah, Whoa, yeah, yeah. crazy! There's or, an episode of Stargate that's set in 2010. Oh crap! <laughs> <laughs> Which was like 10 years in the future at yeah, that point, Jesus. or eight years or something in the future. If you're going to do futuristic well, stuff, put it yeah. forward put it a, a little bit more. Away, Don't put make it like 20 away. years. <laughs> I mean, that episode of Stargate was, ended up being an alternate future, so it, really, oh, it didn't really matter. Clever. Much. Well, I mean, I think, I feel like with the events of this year, um, uh, I never really actually stopped to reflect on 2020. It was strange when we got to 2020 and then yeah. so much stuff has happened that I like, never really thought about it. We're in the I, 20s. I find it very odd when we got to 2020 because like so many like... Um, climate targets or, mm, or, or other sort of like targets set by international bodies were always like 2020 by 2020 <laughs> we'll have x number of this or y <laughs> number of that and uh and it was very strange to reach that date and things are going and great now, right things are going perfectly yeah, cool swimmingly, okay good swimmingly. yeah don't worry jack <laughs> <laughs> oh god I feel like 2050 is the one too where they're like everything will be underwater and it's only horrible <laughs> so looking forward to that um yeah, 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 yeah. all right cat on my lap um Cool. Again, cool. <laughs> uh, should we just end it? Should we be out from here? Yeah.
Yeah, we're yeah we're dragging it out, aren't we? We're dragging it out a dragging bit. Why not? We're going long. Talk about um, couches in a different position than a normal. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, pretty the crazy. Rooms, the rooms moved around. Um, I don't know. Not much. I don't have a lot going on. Might snow you tomorrow. Any painting recently? Painting? Have I done any painting? Don't no, but I've been just... doing some terrain building. Oh, neat. I painted one piece of it, but I'm kind of putting off painting the rest because I don't really know how I'm going to do it. Um, yeah, have you? Have you been doing anything? Nope. Yeah. Well, there you go. There we go. Yeah, that's the question I have no <laughs> um, Maybe that's how podcasts is meant to work, is that you ask a question having prepared your own answer to your own question. And your answer is no. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah I prepared an answer. No. Um, um, it might snow, yes. It might snow. Maybe, maybe we'll get some snow. I'm kind of not looking forward to that. I'm always really excited being like, snow, oh my God, it could snow. But now that I know what it's going to be like, it's like, that's going to be a hassle. Yeah. I'm going to have to go warm up my beans. Um, which I should probably do today. Find us, find us some suggestions for protecting the beans. For, yeah, all you bean stands out there. Um, all right, let's end it. This has been Auxiliary Statements, reading Hillary Putnam. Um, uh, I'm Jack. I'm Tom. This has been the cat. I always forget the cat's name. Belle. And I'll see you next time. music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people to by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion till next time